the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 29. It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Join us. Abounding Grace is next. The Ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Hello and welcome to our broadcast. Pastor Gary Wagner continues our survey of Luke. We're in chapter 6, looking at verses 20 through 29. And on today's program and our next broadcast, we'll take a look at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Please join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. The ideals and principles in the Sermon on the Mount are utterly contrary to those of human societies and governments. In Christ's kingdom, the most exalted persons are those who are the lowliest in the world's estimation, and vice versa. Jesus declared that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived until that time. Yet John had no possessions and no home, lived in the wilderness, dressed in a hair garment, and ate locust and wild honey. He was not a part of the religious system, and he had no financial, military, or political power. In addition to that, he preached a message that in the world's eyes was completely irrelevant and absurd. But by worldly standards, he was a misfit and a failure. Yet he received the Lord's highest praise because he put... God and his word above all else in his life, which is what we're being called to do in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' kingdom, his disciples are characterized in this great sermon as being humble, compassionate, meek, yearning for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted for the sake of the very righteousness they practice. In the world's eyes, those characteristics are the mark of losers, beloved. The world says, assert yourself. Stand up for yourself. Be proud of yourself. Elevate yourself. Defend yourself. Avenge yourself. Serve yourself. Those are the treasured traits of the world's people and the world's kingdoms. And that is why the world is in the sad shape that it, is, that it is in today. But the Lord Jesus Christ delivered the greatest sermon the world has ever heard so that we should know how his disciples are to live in this world. And it is as we live by these standards from the heart that Christ's kingdom will overcome this world. 
And every knee shall bow before him, and every tongue shall confess his name and claim him King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And with all that in mind, there are, says Pastor John MacArthur, at least five reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is important. And if I might, I'm going to add at least one more. Pastor MacArthur says, first, it shows the absolute necessity of the new birth. Its standards are much too high and demanding to be met by human power. Only those who partake of God's own nature through Jesus Christ can fulfill such demands. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount go far beyond those of Moses in the law in demanding not only righteous actions, but righteous attitudes. Not just that men do right, but they be right. No part of Scripture more clearly shows man's desperate situation without God. Second, he says, the sermon intends to drive the listener to Jesus Christ as man's only hope of meeting God's standards. Since man cannot live up to the divine standard, he needs a supernatural power to enable him. The proper response to the sermon leads us to Christ. Third, the sermon gives God's pattern for happiness for, and for true success. It reveals the standards, the objections, the objectives, and the motives that, with God's help, will fulfill what God has designed man to be. Here we find the way of joy, peace, and contentment. Fourth, the sermon is perhaps the greatest scriptural resource for witnessing, for reaching others for Christ. A Christian who personifies these principles of Jesus will be a spiritual magnet attracting others to the Lord who empowers him to live as he does. The life obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is the church's greatest tool for evangelism. And his sixth, fifth principle is the life obedient to the maxims of this proclamation is the only life that is pleasing to God. That is the believer's highest reason. For following Jesus' teaching, it pleases God. And reason number six, I believe, is that as Christ's disciples mirror the Christ-like characteristic contained in this sermon, as we are faithful to these God-given standards, God will bless our faithfulness by transforming His entire creation from darkness to light in bringing all areas of His created order into submission to Him. Beloved, Scripture does not teach us that it is the mighty who will be victorious. It will be those who faithfully apply God's law word to their life day after day, no matter the consequences, no matter how many times we get knocked down and Christ has to pick us up, no matter the ridicule and slander. He who is sovereign all over all of creation uses our heartfelt faithfulness to perform mighty deeds for His glory. God is not looking for heroes. He makes 
heroes, out of faithful warriors who perseveringly stand on the rock of Christ, proclaiming His truths to a fallen world day after day after day. That is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important, beloved, and why it points us to the preacher. Because without the inner transformation that He gives us, and through the power of His Spirit, none of this sermon is possible. Now let's spend the rest of our time today simply reviewing this great sermon after weeks of study. So that as I bring this sermon to a close, we can etch into our minds what a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ truly looks like. In verses 20 through 23, the Sermon on the Mount begins with four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when men hate you for my name's sake. Here Jesus is saying that in these Beatitudes you have a description of what a true Christian looks like. And this is his whole point here. You see, this isn't just for spiritual people. This is what every Christian should look like. If you don't recognize your poverty of spirit, if you are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness and mourning and weeping over your poverty of spirit, and men don't hate you for Christ's sake, you have to question your faithfulness. You have to question whether you truly are one of God's elect. This is the description of a Christian. These beatitudes will all be manifested in the lives of Christians. Because, you see, each beatitude of necessity is implied in the other. And you may be sitting there saying, well, I've got four out of five. Well, that's not enough. They will all be there if you are Christ's. Also, none of these Beatitudes describe a natural tendency latent in human beings. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, just bring out what's already there. This isn't something that an ordinary human being can experience, my friends. This is something that only someone who has been born of the Spirit, whose whole inner life has been changed by God's grace, can produce. No one but the real Christian can understand his poverty of spirit. No one but the real Christian can mourn over that fact that he has poverty of spirit. And no one but the real Christian can or will hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are things only God can produce in a person's life. And these Beatitudes define the total difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. They're different in every way. The Christian and the non-Christian are different in what they admire. The Christian, according to these Beatitudes, admires the person who mourns and sobs, cries over his spiritual bankruptcy and his poverty of spirit. While the non-Christian admires the man who's full of self-esteem, self-righteousness, and self-sufficiency, and self-love. A Christian and a non-Christian different in what they seek after. 
A non-Christian seeks basically to satisfy his own personal needs and desires. A Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness and for Christ. They are different in what they do. The Christian trusts and obeys God and lives for the glory of Christ's kingdom. He understands his poverty of spirit, that he has nothing of value to bring or to offer to God. And then say, here, God, accept me on the basis of this. He recognizes that he is a sinner and he mourns over that fact. It breaks his heart. It it embarrasses him. It literally crushes him. That he is not what God made him to be. And that he is the sinner that justly deserves God's displeasure. More than anything in the world, the believer craves and he yearns for God's love and God's righteousness and the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ himself brings. I don't think there is anything that tells us more clearly and vividly than the Beatitudes this one great truth. No one can truly know Christ as his Lord and Savior until he first of all knows what it is to mourn and sob and hunger. Then in these Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us not to be naive. Christians, you must expect slander and persecution from this evil culture in which we all live simply because you know him. And that you're seeking to be faithful to him. Then there are these four. Be- then after these four beatitudes, he gives us four words of denunciation. These in verses 25 through 27. Woe to you who are rich! Woe to you who are well fed now! Woe to you who laugh now! Woe to you when men speak well of you! Well, understand first of all what the word woe is. It is a word of judgment. It is a word of denunciation. This is the judge of the universe rendering his judgment in reference to certain people. And ultimately, his judgment is the only judgment that matters. The world may judge you. Someone may make an assessment of you. But really, the only judgment or criticism of you that ever matters is the judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ makes on you, beloved. So here the Lord is pronouncing his judgment upon certain people. And keep in mind, these woes contain figures of speech. He's not speaking literally here. He's not saying those of you who are rich with money are going to go to hell. Because some of his most faithful godly servants in the Bible were filthy rich. And being poor doesn't earn you a seat in heaven. Some of the most base people in the world are poverty stricken. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. Who are the rich that Jesus is speaking of? Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. The rich are those people who imagine... That they have everything they need in and of themselves and can do without, can do without the kingdom of God. The poor are those who grieve over their sinful condition in true repentance and faith in Christ. The The riches of the rich are anything 
that man puts his trust in. In the life of the rich person, he receives just about everything he wants here. But at death, he goes to hell. Jesus says, the poor hunger, but the rich are fed now. The rich, those who are satisfied with themselves and think they need nothing for God, are content with themselves. They are content with all the things they have set their hearts on in this world. And notice that word now. They are well fed now in this life in contrast to the life to come. In this life, people who don't think they need Christ may live prosperously and happy and contented, satisfied lives. But because there is no room in their heart for God's kingdom and God's righteousness and God's Son, they lose everything and enter the eternal, empty darkness of hell. Whereas the godly hunger for righteousness and are satisfied with it now, at death, and in the life to come. The poor sob over their poverty of spirit, and the rich laugh with glee at the enjoyment of their things, full of self-satisfaction and self-esteem. The rich man, he see, has no time for soul-searching, contrition of heart, or godly sorrow, brokenness over sin, true repentance. The rich man's life is dedicated to the acquisition of ease and comfort and affluence and respectability. The self-satisfied man may think that he can live however he pleases. And in the end, everything will be all right for him. But he couldn't be further from the truth. Oh, he laughs now. But in the end, when the Christian is laughing with glee because of his gracious relationship with Christ, that rich man will sob in terror at death. Then after these denunciations, Jesus in 27 through 38 gives the demands of love. Notice how verse 27 begins. Because it is important in understanding the rest of the sermon today, beloved. But I say to you who hear, those of you who have ears to hear, listen to this because you are the only people capable of doing what I am about to command you to do. Only those of you who have spiritual ears can live like this. You can't do it naturally in your own strength. You have to be born of God. In my kingdom, he says, I give you new life and new power and new ears. So to you, whose entire insides have been transformed by the kingdom of God, I command you to love like this, because you are the only people who can. And what does the word love mean? It's the word agape here. And love has two basic characteristics that lend to its meaning. First, it is the giving of yourself for the benefit of someone else. In the Bible, when it says that God loves, He always gives. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In Romans, it tells us, this is the way you can know God loves you. He gave His Son to die for us. So this love we have for other people is a love that moves us to give of our own time and our own energy and our own wealth and ourselves. 
lives for the benefit and happiness and welfare of another person. Second, the word of love is defined in the Bible in Romans 13. It says, love is the fulfillment of the law of God. You love someone when you obey what the Bible says you are supposed to do in reference to that other person from your heart. Whenever you think you have to break the law of God to love another person, you are not loving them. You are hating them, beloved. So when we hear Jesus telling us to love our enemies, understand that it is a giving of yourself for the welfare of another person. And the love that we have toward other people must always be within the boundaries of the law of God. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In other words, there are going to be people out there who are going to seek to do you and I harm. So don't try to pay them back. Don't try to seek revenge. Don't try and strike back at your enemies who persecute you and hate you and slander you. You've got to maintain an attitude and a response of love towards them according to the word of God. In other words... Our treatment and our attitude toward our enemies must depend on what they are and what they do to us and on what they deserve. Why, that good-for-nothing person, he dragged my name through the mud. That's irrelevant. Well, that good-for-nothing person deserves to go to hell and burn forever. Oh, that may be, but that's irrelevant too. Well, that good-for-nothing person is the biggest pervert I've ever seen in my life. That is irrelevant to your response to him when he persecutes and slanders you. This love that we are to have towards our enemies disregards what that person is, does, or deserves. How do we know that? Well, that good-for-nothing, sinful pervert that deserves to go to hell, God sends upon him his reign, and he causes his sun to shine upon him. God is gracious with him. God is compassionate with him. God is patient with him. And God is merciful towards him. And thank God, because we once were that person. Now, how can that be? Because God's added towards him, toward him in his common grace and his common generosity towards his creatures disregards anything that man deserves. He doesn't deserve to have God's rain fall upon him. He doesn't deserve to have God's sun to shine upon him. God does it out of the mercy and compassion that arises out of his great heart in total disregard of what that person really deserves. Now, how can we love like that? How can we possibly love our enemies like that? The whole secret to loving people like that is to be totally detached from two things. We must be totally detached from their behavior toward us, and we must be totally detached from ourselves. That is what's called self-denial. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. 
Surrender yourself to me. Take up your cross and follow me. And the only way a Christian can love like that is to stop trying to figure out what the other person deserves and to love him in spite of what he deserves. And a total detachment from desire and revenge or seeking to get even in and of himself by saying, I'm not worthy of anything. Therefore, I deny myself and I give myself up to God. Those thoughts of revenge, of payback, they don't occur to me because I'm not worthy of revenge. God is sovereign and I will submit to His will. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, number 402-1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. (music) 